Please stand with me this morning as we read from Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verses 33 through 42. Acts 5, 33 through 42. Now this is picking up as Kelvy left off with us last week, the disciples, I'm sorry, the apostles continuing to preach the gospel of Jesus against the Sanhedrin's wishes. They were jailed by the power of God through an angel of the Lord. They are taken out of prison. They go straight back to preaching the gospel. They're brought back in front of the Sanhedrin and that is where we pick up this morning. When they heard this, that's the Sanhedrin, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took this advice, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. So the Sanhedrin, they're on round two and more with these apostles, and they are tired of the fact that they will not submit to their authority, and they are just enraged with jealousy. And remember, jealousy is the same motivation that caused them to put Jesus to death, and that is what is in their heart at this moment. They want to kill these men. They can't get them to stop talking, but if they kill them, they will stop talking. And they're on the verge of killing them, which is interesting. That would be the end of the early church. This is the apostolic group right here. If they're all wiped out, we don't have the rest of the New Testament. And we're not here today talking about Jesus. But the Lord had a plan to protect his people. And so let's look at this. Gamaliel, a teacher, a respected teacher of the law, who's not going to be the last time we see him in Scripture. Gamaliel was the teacher of uh, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul, the great missionary in the establishment of the early church. Gamaliel was the rabbi or the teacher of Saul, a man with great knowledge of the Scriptures, but without faith. There are many people in this world today, scholars, that know way more about the Bible than you or me, but they don't believe what they read, and they don't believe what is before them. And Gamaliel did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. But he knows enough about the ways and the work of God to know that you cannot oppose God. And so he tells them to take care about what they're getting ready to do. They're getting ready to kill all of these apostles, and there will be repercussions if they go about doing that. And so he says, listen up and and take care about this. And the Lord is using Gamaliel at this time to preserve his people. 
All throughout the Old Testament, the Lord has worked in various ways to preserve his people in times of danger. I mean, there are countless scenarios of this in the scriptures. We think of some of the big ones of the Exodus and the Red Sea and Daniel and the lion's den and the way in which uh, the, the people were preserved in the rebuilding of the country under uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And we could just go on and on. And we have it here as well. It is out of their control. They've been put out and they are in a place of being held by this uh, group of people who have power over them, real power over them. And they are outside while the Lord is working to preserve them through Gamaliel. And I think it's important to think about what they were like outside. If you had been put out while you know this council is getting ready to decide your fate, and you can see the murderous rage on their faces, what is your attitude while you're out in the lobby waiting to hear what's going to happen to you? For some of us, anxiety would just be overwhelming to you. It would, it would grip you in a way that was paralyzing. Uh, anxiety has always been a part of human nature. It's a part of our day and age. Uh, the, the scriptures talk about it a lot because it's not a new feeling to human beings. It's the feeling of everything being radically out of control and I am not in control of this situation. And so you can either go further into that until it just overwhelms you or you can turn to where the scriptures would have us turn, which is to faith in the Lord God. That the Lord God is, in fact, in control of the situation. What may seem out of control is not out of control. And we know in verses 41 and 42 that the disciples were rejoicing that they were in this place. And that if they were taken and executed for the name of Christ, they would consider it an honor. We're going to come back to that in a little while. But their faith was powerful. And their faith should be an example to us in the way that we see the situations of our day and that we trust the Lord for the future and that in a very real and practical way we know that the world is not out of control. It is in fact under the authority of the Lord which is going to be the central point of this entire sermon. Well verse 36 six, he talks about uh, examples of upstarts. Thutis, Judas, and then he's going to go to Jesus. Gamaliel says, look, if this is of man or of human origin, it will work its way out and it will die out. And all of our ways of having uh, institutions that have existed for thousands of years will remain in place and we're going to be fine, fellas. And so he brings out these two examples and helps them to understand that if it is of human nature, it will fail. Now, what does this mean? This means that all the plans of human beings begin and end. Some are shorter than others. Some are longer than others. Some plans of human beings rise up and fall very quickly. The examples given here by Gamaliel were pretty quick in their rise and their fall. But there are others that last much longer. Uh, the works of Muhammad and the works of uh, Joseph Smith and the works of uh, those that started other movements have lasted very much longer. But what I want you to see about all the works of human beings is that they have a start and they have an end. Even if that end is an ultimate end of when they die, their work is terminated. But what we see in the scriptures and what we must hold on to as Christians is the reality that the work of the Lord is unending. It is eternal. 
The purposes of God expressed to us in the scriptures are from eternity past going into eternity future. And we're going to spend some time camping out on this and seeing how this works out in human history. But this is what Gamaliel is saying. And he knows enough about God to know that we cannot stop the works of the Lord. We cannot get in his way and overpower the will or the workings of the Lord. I want to read for you from uh, Isaiah chapter 46. Isaiah chapter 46, verses 8 through 12. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. It's a powerful passage. It's a clear statement. That the things of the Lord, listen to me, you stubborn of heart, the things that I have spoken, I will bring to pass. I have purposed, I will do it. This is what happens throughout the scriptures related to what the Lord speaks and says. Through all the kingdoms of the world and the strivings of kings and the rulers of the world, the will of the Lord will stand. This is what Gamaliel is saying, and this is what is absolutely true. I want to take you through a little walk. I enjoyed being in England over the past couple of weeks. I had, some was for just personal visits, some was for work. But I had a chance to see a long period of history in a way that I haven't seen in a long time. We went to the British Museum, and there in the British Museum, there are these displays of ancient things that are just amazing. One of the displays was the Ur of the Chaldeans, artifacts from that period of time. If you know your Bible history, that's the place from which Abraham was sent out into the promised land. And here in front of us are these various artifacts from the Ur of the Chaldeans. And it goes on from there for rooms and rooms of Egyptian artifacts, massive heads and hieroglyphic tablets and tombs of Ramses and all these things that were a part of the time of Moses and the 430-year enslavement of the people of Israel. Right before you. And you go from there to these crazy 15-foot-tall, uh, massive statues from Assyria from the time of Sennacherib. If you're familiar with your Bible history, Sennacherib and the Assyrians were those who conquered Israel. And these big bearded heads that are on these massive lion bodies with these, with these eagle's wings meant to guard the, the tombs and the way of the kings of the Assyrians. You go to the next room and there's all these tablets and writings and things that are related to Nebuchadnezzar II. We spent a long time here about a year ago talking about Daniel and the work of Nebuchadnezzar and, and his arrogance and his overthrowing of the people, but then the Lord overthrowing him. The tablet, little Sanskrit tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh, all these things. It's really sobering 
and, and brings things back in a way that I think only being there can really help you grasp the reality of these things. We read about these things and they seem like myths from long ago because we haven't seen or really encountered any of these things. But when these statues are directly in front of you and you see the realities of these things, it helps you to grasp what is happening in history and the reality of history. And what I want to bring to bear this morning is what is being said by Gamaliel, that the will and the purposes of the Lord will be and have been worked out in the world from that time unto now. And so what is happening is that the, um, the work of the Lord is unbroken. So the kings of old have been at work as hard as they possibly could to do what they wanted to do. They brought together all the earthly wealth and military power that they could possibly bring to bear in order to accomplish their will in the world, and it was not accomplished. It ended up being ash and ruins and put on display in a museum. But when we put together the Ur of the Chaldeans, we put together the Egyptians, the Assyrians, Nebuchadnezzar, what do we see in common in all these things? Is the outworking of the purposes of the Lord. The, the Lord prophesied things, said things that would be done, and they were in fact done, and they were in fact accomplished. And what we have is a culmination from all of these fallen kingdoms with the coming of Christ Jesus during the time of the Romans. Because you go to another room and we get to the New Testament, which is the time period that we're talking about here right now in the book of Acts, where the people are, the apostles are preaching and teaching about Jesus Christ resurrected. And in that museum, you go around the corner from another room and it's all about the Greeks and the Parthenon. And there's all these statues, these very real statues from 400 B.C., and what blows me away about that, which I think is just absolutely amazing, is that that Parthenon there in Athens with this huge central colossal god of uh, gold and ivory of Athena that is, it existed during the time of the New Testament, that in Acts chapter 17, when Paul went to go preach the gospel there in Greece, his heart was stirred up and provoked, it says, by all of the idols to where he began to preach to them about an unknown God and proclaim the gospel to them, that the Lord God created the earth and tells them about Jesus and it is crazy to think that Paul very did, very much did see the same statues that I'm looking at in this museum. The Parthenon was the center of Greek worship at that time, and he would have seen that. And here they are in this museum. And it's a linkage between ancient times to now to help us understand that the purposes of God have not been broken. They continue on in our time. That Paul preached the gospel, the apostles preached the gospel before him, and I am preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ to you now, here today in Spotsylvania, 2,000 years later. Well, what happened is that these apostles were not killed. They were not executed. They went out by the work of the Lord to continue the missionary enterprise that Jesus had commanded them to do, to go and make disciples in all the world. Because later in my trip, I had the chance to go to Westminster Abbey, which I always visit when I go to London, uh, an amazing place. But when you look back in history and say, how did Christianity get here? 
Well, in the 6th century AD, a monk named Augustine, not Augustine of Hippo, another Augustine, goes to pagan Anglo-Saxon England, which the Druids were hard pagan people in a hard land. And he goes and proclaims the gospel to them, and his ministry takes root. And that is where the, the abbey at Canterbury was first built, and Christianity begins to grow in the island of England. And over the centuries, it reaches its height during the 15th and 17th century, where the Westminster Abbey is built. And then following that is the Westminster Confession of Faith. Many of you have heard about that. It is a very in-depth, very clearly thought-out confession of faith put together by the English Puritans of their time, a high point in Christianity that did not just come out of nowhere. It came from the missionary purposes of people sacrificially going to foreign lands and preaching the gospel generation after generation after generation, preserving, studying, preaching, and teaching the Bible. Well, there was a dip in Christianity in England in the 18th century and then a great revival in the 19th century under Spurgeon and under the Imperial English Empire, similar to the way that Rome expanded around the world and Christianity expanded with it. When the imperial reaches of Great Britain reached all over the world, what went with it also was the missionary enterprise of Christians. This was the great age of the sending of Adoniram Judson and William Carey and John Patton and Hudson Taylor to the far reaches of the world preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. When I went to uh, Evensong, that's every, every evening at 5 o'clock in Westminster Abbey, Monday through Friday, there in the heart of London, there's a service called Evensong. And it's been going on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I, I go every time, I, every time I'm there. And I understand that the Anglican Church has got all kinds of issues. But what is so fascinating about this is that wherever the scriptures are preached, and these ancient confessions of faith that take us back to the roots of Christianity are remembered. The kernel of Christianity is always present. And you go into this place, this same place where these old Westminster Puritan divines, same bricks they walked on, same stones they were in, same place they sang and worshiped the Lord Jesus. We go to worship the Lord Jesus. And there's a lot of spectators that just come there to see what is going on, but the service begins with the confession of sins and asking the Lord Jesus to forgive us. A reading and singing of the Magnificat from Luke chapter 1. The reading of the Apostles' Creed. The recitation of the Lord's Prayer and two different scripture readings. And they have a calendar of readings that they go by. And the reading for that day blew me away. I mean, London is one of the most liberal secular places in the world. And the reading was from Proverbs 31. And I thought... Are they actually going to read the whole chapter? Are they going to cut it apart or cut it short? This lady read the whole thing. I was like, that's amazing. Wherever the scriptures are continue, continue to be read and continue to be taught, something of Christianity will remain and it will then expand and grow. And for all of their faults, they have held on to these things. And as we sang in this beautiful place and the scriptures were read, it, there's something that lifts your soul, something that speaks to you of the transcendence of God in the world and the reality of the work of Jesus Christ and the enduring work of Jesus Christ. The point of this sermon this morning is related to what Gamaliel said, if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You cannot stop the work of God in the world. 
It is God, it is of God, and it did remain, and it continues to remain. The work of Christ in the world through the Christian church is larger than it ever was. It has been attacked and undermined for thousands of years, and yet it is never destroyed. And it never will be destroyed until Jesus Christ returns again. It is the common salvation given to us once and for all delivered to the saints. We are Christian people. And we live in a non-Christian land. We stand in this long, unbroken line of God's will being accomplished in Christ. And I want to encourage you this morning that you not struggle against the Lord in your life, but that you see where God is working and you join with him there. That's always been our desire in this church, to see where the Lord is working and join him. Be a part of what he is doing in the world. We proclaim the gospel to this generation, and we pray that after us, our children will proclaim the gospel to their generation, and they will continue on in the unbroken work of the Lord. Through every hardship, through every period of unbelief, as Christians, we push back the darkness. We are making disciples. We are caring for orphans and widows. We are those who make peace. We are those who live in gentleness and kindness. We are those that preserve learning and education. If you're not aware of that in church history, Christians have always been known as those because we're a people of the book. We're a people that must be literate in order that we understand and know and learn who God is. So we care about education and we care about writing and we care about knowledge so that we might come to know Christ. These are the things that have always characterized us as Christians in the past and must characterize us today and into the future until Jesus comes again. I was radically encouraged by the, the, the fact that the Lord had me teaching on this this morning and all of this that I got to see over the past few weeks, and I hope it's encouraging to you as well to know that the work of the Lord has continued on, that what Gamaliel said was in fact true, and this work was not overthrown, and it continues on into our day and our land. Well, the Sanhedrin takes the advice of Gamaliel. They call them in. They beat them, command them to stop talking about Jesus, and they go out the door and immediately, of course, begin talking about Jesus again. They're not going to stop preaching Jesus. They do not hesitate to continue to proclaim that the Christ, which means the Messiah, is Jesus. Jesus is the Savior of the world. And I want to finish our time out this morning in 1 Peter. Peter, uh, let's see, we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter was imprisoned with the apostles during this period of time, um, and he was imprisoned many times past this, many other times after this. And when he writes to the churches, he writes to them about how they ought to suffer well for the Lord. Last week, Kelby talked to you some about the persecution of the church in the greater world. There has been intense persecution of Christians throughout the world in the recent uh, century that we have lived in, and we do not expect for this to stop. But there is always uh, admonitions and directions as to how we ought to live as Christians in a non-Christian world. So let's hear what Peter has to say in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you 
as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome uh, for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Skipping over to chapter 5, verses 10 through 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a powerful passage written by a person who suffered and lived these things firsthand, twice delivered by an angel from prison, but then ultimately died as a martyr for the sake of the gospel when it was time for, his, for him to enter into heaven, when his time of ministry was finished. But he, we must do what he calls for us to do, entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. It is not an inactive way of cloistering yourself away from the world, but it is an active pressing into the world to proclaim the gospel, to live as Christians, to be salt and light in the world. And as we go out to do those things, knowing that Jesus is with us, knowing that he is our Savior, knowing with great, firm, unending confidence that the will of the Lord will be accomplished in this world. We don't know what it is. And that's why we walk by faith. The Lord has called us to walk by faith one day at a time, trusting him for today and then trusting him for tomorrow and then trusting him for the day after that. And we keep going until the day in which the Lord calls us home. So I pray that this passage would be greatly encouraging to you, that the work of Peter, that the the look of heritage and how the unbroken will of God has carried us to the day where we are today and that the Lord will continue his work until he calls us home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you also that things have been preserved from history that point to your works in the past, and that we can go and see and actually touch real things from ancient, ancient times that confirm to us what we read in the scriptures. And that by this, our hearts might be greatly encouraged that you have been working in the past, that your word has been fulfilled, and that it will be fulfilled in the future. I pray that we would look to the past and that we would see the works of both your prophets of old and missionaries and faithful Christians in the not too distant past. And that we would see ourselves in our own time as your people and that we would live faithfully for you. And that you would help us to entrust ourselves to you, living uh, godly lives each and every day. May you direct our path. May you strengthen our faith. May you remove our anxieties and help us to trust you. Lord, that the lost might be saved and Jesus might be glorified. In Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.